Well, it is so good uh, to be back. Uh, of course, we were here uh, last week with Professor Paul Twist, and I'm sure uh, if you were sitting here with us or watching uh, from home, that you were blessed by Professor Paul Twist and his exposition there in Genesis uh, chapter 11. Uh, we, our family, has had a little bout with uh, sickness, and so um, it feels like it's been forever since I've been up here. And I'm grateful to be back, grateful to see all of you, many new faces, and I just want to give my own personal uh, welcome to you. We'd love uh, to be able to talk to you more about our church and find out if there's ways that we can serve you and, and care for you as an individual as, or as a family. But I'm so grateful to, to be back. How are you guys doing? All right, great. That, uh, that, that response, how are you doing, uh, usually comes back with, yeah, I'm doing good, doing great. Um, there is someone that I know, actually multiple people, when you say, how are you doing? And the response is, oh, I can't complain. But, you know, sometimes uh, I think what they mean is, I can't not complain. Because when they say, I can't complain, and they begin to talk about the weather and the traffic, or how cold it is, or how many tourists there are here in our area, um, it, you realize really quickly that I'm not sure if you understand what this whole complaining thing is. When you hear about that, I can't complain, and then you go on and complain, does that sound like someone you know? Maybe someone you know at the gym, maybe someone in school, maybe someone in your family, or maybe that's you. Maybe you're the one who oftentimes complains Maybe you are Mr. Grumple Dump. Mr. Grumple Dump is uh, the creation of poet and cartoonist and songwriter Shelv Silverstein. I think uh, Silverstein captures this whole complaining culture in this little poem he wrote. It goes like this Everything's wrong. Days are too long. Sunshine is too hot. Wind is too strong. Clouds are too fluffy, grass is too green, ground is too dusty, sheets are too clean, stars are too twinkly, moon is too high, water's too drippy, sand is too dry, rocks are too heavy, feathers too light, kids are too noisy, shoes are too tight. Now the interesting thing about that is I, the first thing I did when I got upstairs was my shoes are too tight. Folks are too happy, singing their songs, why can't they see everything's wrong? That's a little playful tune, but I think it's actually a sad commentary on our culture's outlook on life. We know that complaining is not socially acceptable. We know that when we're around complainers, we feel it. They're drainers. We know we don't really like it, and yet oftentimes we find ourselves doing it over and over and over again. And this isn't just a worldly problem, a non-Christian problem, a pagan, a heathen problem. This problem happens in the context of our church. And oftentimes, most of the complaining that we hear comes from people within the church. But you and I know that complaining convolutes the character of Christ and of the Christian. We are not to be marked by complaining. 
If someone were to ask you, what are the defining characteristics of a Christian, you would say things like, oh, he's to be holy, uh, she's to be um, godly, uh, reverence, um, pursuing faithfulness, purity. I wonder in your description of what a Christian is, you ever say a non-grumbler or someone who is constantly content. You see, as Christians, we are to take sin seriously. We want to stay away from anything that dishonors Christ, anything that would bring shame upon the gospel. And so we try to avoid the big sins, and then we tend to give little thought to something as common as complaining, because comparatively speaking, when we complain, it's just not really that big of a deal, is it? Why make such a big deal about complaining. After all, I'm not hurting anyone. I'm not committing any serious sin. But that's exactly the attitude, brothers and sisters, that makes it so dangerous. In Philippians 2, 5 through 11, we we saw the beauty of Christ, this Christology, this high exaltation of Christ. And we love that passage of scripture. And some of us can sing it and have memorized it and quote it. If I say, work out your salvation, you say, with what? With fear and trembling. You guys got that down. You get to 14, and there's like spiritual amnesia. What, what, what in the world does 214 say? I've never seen 214 on a tattoo. I've never seen someone uh, say, that's my favorite verse. I don't know, anyway, of any conferences that are about killing, complaining, and so when you get to Philippians 2.14, you realize that, hey, this is really something that we don't, we don't seek accountability groups. We don't really ask for prayer to, hey, brother, can you keys, please keep me accountable that I would not complain? Finding that in my heart, I'm just complaining a lot. How often does that happen in discipleship groups? Honestly, it just seems like this is one of those commands in Scripture that's often overlooked. And because... We don't take this sin seriously. We suffer. This week I was actually reading a few studies. There was one conducted at Stanford University about complaining. And the study revealed that complaining or even being complained to for 30 minutes or more can physically damage the brain. Complaining has been found to shrink the hippocampus. For those of you that study anatomy and are smart, you know what the hippocampus is? I have no idea. The hippocampus is the area of the brain critical to problem-solving and intelligent thoughts, and it does so by physically peeling away neurons. So continued complaining, what it does is it rewires our brains and it makes it much easier to repeat that behavior. The quote from the article reads this, it's fascinating. It says, complaining works like a muscle The more you complain about things like flaky friends or being asked to push a project's deadline, the more neurons in your brain stitch themselves together to easily facilitate this kind of information. And before you know it, complaining becomes so easy for your brain to grasp that you start doing it without consciously registering the behavior. And what this article goes on to say is that your brain makes sure that complaining begets more complaining. And so if you're in a group and you're around people or you live with someone who's constantly complaining and you just follow suit, then your home will be marked by a bunch of complainers. When was the last time that you complained? 
Was it this morning? Complained about the president? Politics? All those liberals? Complaining about the prices? The gas? The food prices? Inflation? The housing market? Long lines? Slow Wi-Fi? Traffic crowds? The weather? Complaining about Mondays? For some reason, Mondays just has a bad rap. We complain about people who complain, but it doesn't stop there. Dom, your sermons are too long. Your sermons are too short. People really don't say that one. It's too expositional. It's too topical. And on and on it goes. We're singing too many hymns. We need more contemporary. It just on and on and on. Well, what does God think about complaining? Well, what's his perspective, his point of view? How, how does he view complaining and complainers? How vital is it for us as Christians to understand what this sin is and how to actually treat it? Well, the context of where we find ourselves in Philippians is going to be a big help. Just by way of review, you remember that uh, Paul has been writing to the Philippians to call them to really one thing. Right? When you boil down Philippians, what is he doing? And it goes back to 127, that we are to live our citizenship as Christ's children, as ambassadors, as citizens of heaven. We are to live in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. And he goes on to say, we're to stand firm in one spirit, with one mind, contending together for the faith of the gospel. And last time we were together, we talked about this whole idea of working out our salvation. Yes, God is at work in us, but is our responsibility as he has worked in us to work out that salvation, not to work for it, not to achieve it, not to earn it, not to merit it, but God wants us to work it out. All the practical implications. Now, interestingly, the very thing that Paul highlights after he says God is working in you, and you are to work out, the next thing that Paul says is, we are to cease from all manner of complaining. And he says, one of the ways that you know that salvation, that you possess it, that, that, that you are genuinely saved, one of the ways to know that is the measure to which you complain. You see, because if we've experienced salvation, there should be change, there, there should be behavior differences in our lives, we should have a hatred for the world, a love for holiness, and those things are intended to be tangible and visible and palpable to a watching world. But if Christians, who Paul is saying be unified, if we're unified but we're marked as a community, as a church, by being a bunch of complainers, then we're communicating a faulty message. Our light is diminished, church, and we won't be able to invade the darkness of our dark world if we're constantly living in the shadows of complaining. And so Paul reminds the Philippians that their heavenly citizenship should manifest itself with a commitment to killing complaining. And you know just as well as I do that this swims against American culture because if you have a Twitter account or if you're on social media, that is what we see over and over and over again. It is a spirit of disgruntled complaints. But Paul says here, look, you're harming your witness. 
You're not making much of the beauty and majesty of Christ when you have this attitude of complaining. And so Paul gives the command here in verse 14. Let us read it together. Do all things without grumbling or disputing. And he says in verse 15, so that you will be blameless and innocent children of God without blemish in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation among whom you shine as lights in the world, holding fast the word of life so that in the day of Christ I will have reason to boast because I do not run in vain nor labor in vain. Our outline for this morning is very simple. All we're going to do is look at three major headings. What is grumbling? Why is grumbling wrong? And how is grumbling avoided? Again, what is grumbling? Why is it wrong? And how is it avoided? And if you're taking notes, you want to write this down. This is our main idea. Just one, one evidence that we're working out our salvation is the decreased presence of grumbling in our lives. Once again, I think this passage is, is hammering this home. An evidence that we are working out our salvation is the decreased presence of grumbling in our lives. And so Paul wants you to know, even here in 2021, that our grumbling needs to be replaced with gratitude. That's what should mark the Christian. And you realize that the more mature we are, the less we'll hear of grumbling. But the more spiritually immature we are, the more and more we'll grumble. It's a pretty easy equation. But before we look at the definition of grumbling, I want you first to notice there the, comp the comprehensive nature of this exhortation. Paul begins with this, do all things without grumbling or disputing. So what is this grumbling? And, and what does he mean by do all things? Well, that Greek places an emphasis on the word all. Whenever you have a word that is fronted, it's usually emphatic. And so what Paul is essentially saying is all things keep on doing. And in Greek, that word all, you know what that means? It just means all. Very simple. All. Everything. All of life. Every relationship. Every circumstance. Every day. Every moment. 24-7, you, Christian, are not to complain. And the verb here, do, is in the present imperative, which means that this is something that we are to continually not do. We're to continually live and speak in such a way that we do not grumble. And it's interesting, isn't it? Because Paul doesn't say, look, you need to cut back on your grumbling. He doesn't say that. I think we'd prefer if he said, don't grumble about everything. Or if he said, you can grumble some of the time. And just think of how silly that is because replace grumbling with some other sin. Don't commit too much adultery. Don't steal all the time. Don't murder every day. We hear things like that and say, how foolish. But I think we try to justify our grumbling like it's okay. But that's not the way it works. Sin must be mortified completely. And Paul says here, especially, especially the sin of complaining. So Paul says every moment as we're working out our salvation with fear and trembling, we're to understand that we live under a sovereign, loving, and providential hand, and that is God's hand. And we're to go on living without grumbling, without disputing. And Paul does not give us any wiggle room. He does not make any exceptions. 
But what is this grumbling? So we can know how to avoid it. Grumbling is the Greek word gonguzmos. Say that with me. Gonguzmos. It's an automatopoeic word. Like in Batman, pow, boom, bang. It's a word that sounds like you're making it. So our English word is murmur. And when someone murmurs, exactly, that <laughs> that is what gonguzmos is. It's that guttural sound of disgust. Something that you do with an undertone. It's not necessarily an out loud dissatisfaction, but when you're a kid and your mom tells you to clean your room and you walk around, that's the word. Gonguzmas. Now, we see this word quite a bit in the New Testament. Let me take you to a few places. Uh, turn to John chapter 6. Oftentimes, when you read through the gospel narratives, you see this word pop up over and over again. John chapter 6, beginning in verse 41, we see the Jews grumbling. And you say, well, Dom, what were they grumbling about? Here it says the Jews were grumbling about him, that's Jesus, because he said, I am the bread that came down from heaven. And they were saying, well, wait, isn't this Jesus, the son of Joseph, whose father and mother we know? How does he now say, I've come down from heaven? And in verse 43, Jesus answered and said to them, stop grumbling among yourselves. And then later on, the disciples will grumble because they, they're having difficulty understanding these hard statements that Jesus are making. And so they're under their breath, just grumbling. Uh, turn over to Luke chapter 5. Luke 5, we see this again from the Pharisees. You're familiar with Jesus bringing salvation to Matthew and to his friends at his home as he's hosting a party. And it says there in Luke 5 and verse 30, the Pharisees and the scribes, they began grumbling at the disciples, saying, why do you eat and drink with tax collectors and sinners? Again, we see this over and over again. Jesus has come. And he's come with salvation. And he's come with mercy and grace. And he's come not to heal the well, but heal the sick and needy. And he comes to Matthew. And he brings salvation. And the Pharisees and the religious elite, they despise it and they grumble. He's eating with tax collectors and sinners. And that famous passage in Luke chapter 15 where there's the lost uh, sheep and the lost coin and the lost son, which you see is just grumbling, grumbling, grumbling. People not happy. People not rejoicing because God is such a gracious Savior. You have an older brother. Why, 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 why don't you do that for me? I've never, I've never had that. Why don't you do it for me? That's the attitude. I'm being treated unfairly. Hey, turn to Matthew chapter 20. Let me show you one more. In Matthew 20, you're familiar with the parable of the workers in the vineyard. You remember the story that Jesus tells? There's a landowner. He hires multiple workers. They come and they work throughout the day. And when the time comes for the, the, the landowner to pay the wages, he pays them what he had previously agreed upon. And look there, starting in verse 8. It says, now when evening came, the owner of the vineyard said to his foreman, call the laborers and pay them their wages, beginning with the last group to the first. And when those hired about the 11th hour came, each one received a denarius. And when those who were hired first came, man, they supposed it was jackpot, right? It's pay time. 
We've been working all day. It says there that they supposed that they would receive more, but each of them also received a denarius. Now, when they received it, what did they do? They grumbled at the landowner saying, these last men have worked only one hour and you have made them equal to us who have bore the burden of the day and the scorching heat. Look at his response. But he answered and said to him, or to them, friend, I am doing you no wrong. Did you not agree with me for a denarius? Take what is yours and go, but I wish to give this last man the same as you. Is it not lawful for me to do what I wish with what is my own? Or is your eye envious because I am generous? Makes me think of Jonah. God just giving all that grace to the pagan Ninevites and Jonah being so displeased at the good and gracious God that wanted to save. And so he stomps his foot and pouts and runs the other direction, grumbling in his heart at the goodness and grace of God. But that right there, that captures the heart of a grumbling complaint. Listen to this. What is it, a grumbling complaint? It is the negative response to something disappointing, unpleasant, or unconvenient arising from the self-centered notion that it is undeserved. So you had an expectation. But that expectation wasn't met. And so now you respond. You have an option how to respond. You don't have to respond with complaining, but this is typically what happens. You have this expectation, and then you get disappointed because it doesn't turn out the way that you want it or the way you think it should turn out. That dissatisfaction turns to discontent. That discontent turns into disgust. And that disgust vocalizes itself in disgruntled complaints. And listen, when we complain, church, it's nothing more than us just unpacking and unfolding what's going on in our heart. The words that are coming out of your mouth, all they're doing is exposing the hearts. One writer said, grumbling is a secret displeasure in the heart and a sullen discontent that leads to criticism. During COVID, everywhere I go, people are always pulling out their thermometer and checking to see if I've got issues or if I've got a fever and they take my temperature. That is what your mouth is. What comes out of your mouth is the gauge that determines your spiritual heart health. Jesus says, from the mouth speaks out of that which fills the heart. Whatever you're pulling that bucket up, whatever's in that well comes up in that bucket. And so if you have bitterness and anger and hatred and discontent, that's exactly what comes up and it spews out of the mouth. Now I can hear someone say, well, wait a second, Dom. Look, I don't grumble. I've just been gifted with telling it like it is. I'm a realist. And oftentimes, people who are in the habit of grumbling, they hardly ever recognize or admit that that's exactly what they do. They say things like, I'm just pointing out the obvious. It's not grumbling if I'm stating facts. 
If I'm speaking the truth, how, how is that an issue, a problem? Well, I looked in the thesaurus. If, if you don't want to be called a grumbler, that's fine. Then you're just a complainer. You say, well, I'm not a complainer either. Well, okay, here's, here's some synonyms. Do you bark? Do you have beef? A bellyache? Do you bicker? There's another B word. I'm not going to say that. Do you bleat? Do you brawl? Do you carp? Do you chirp? Do you complain? Do you crab? Do you criticize? Do you croak? Do you dispute? Do you drum? Do you fight, uh, fault find? Do you fuss? Do you gripe? Do you grouch? Do you growl? Do you groan? Do you grunt? Do you holler? Do you kick? Are you malcontent? Do you murmur, mutter, moan? Do you object? Do you protest? Do you repine? Do you scold? Do you snivel? Do you squawk, squabble, twine, wail, whimper, whine, yammer, yelp? Do you yell? That's not even comprehensive. The, the, the thesaurus has over 50 definitions for grumbling. You say, well, why do they come up with so many? Because we all do it. And we call it different things. Grumbling is so commonplace that we've missed the fact that God takes this sin very, very seriously. You say, Dom, how do you know that? Well, to answer that, we got to go back to the Old Testament. We see the same word in the New Testament in the Septuagint, gonguzmos, or the verb. And what we, what we see this is in Israel's grumbling in the wilderness. There are three specific Old Testament passages that as you read those narratives, you'll see the word pop up over and over and over again. And many of you know, one of those passages is in Exodus chapter 16 and verse 17, where Israel is constantly grumbling about their lack of food and water and having to travel in the wilderness. Then, when God judges Israel for refusing to enter the promised land, they grumble against Moses and Aaron. They say, we want another leader. We want someone to take us back to Egypt. And that is in Numbers 14. Grumbling is also prominent in Korah's rebellion against Moses and Aaron in Numbers 16 and 17. You say, well, which one maybe is, is Paul referring to here? I think he's referring to all of it. All of it, grumbling in general. And he says, think back to the children of Israel and how they handled God's deliverance, and how they responded to God's goodness. Turn with me, actually, to 1 Corinthians chapter 10. 1 Corinthians 10, I want to show you. Paul uses this as he points it out to the Corinthians. He's speaking about Israel in the wilderness, and he's warning them not to follow in their example. So beginning there in verse 6, this is what Paul writes to the Corinthians, chapter 10. Now these things happened as examples for us, so that we would not crave evil things as they also craved. He says, do not be idolaters as some of them were. And as it is written, the people sat down to eat and drink and stood up and play. Verse 8, nor let us act in sexual immorality as some of them did. And 23,000 fell in one day. Nor let us put Christ to the test as some of them did. And they were destroyed by the serpents. What's the list of sins there? They committed evil. They committed idolatry. They were sexually impure. They tested the Lord. And the consequences of all that sin was severe judgment. But Paul's not done with his list. Look there at verse 10. Nor grumble, as some of them did, and they were destroyed by the destroyer. And we all should say, grumbling? Really? Have you played that game 
we, we have three kids, so we play this. Which one does not belong? Grumbling doesn't belong there. So it would seem. Lying, stealing, murdering, maybe. Grumbling? Come on, is that really that big of a deal? Yes, grumbling was one of Israel's greatest and most frequent sins, and God hated it. But we see it over and over again in the Old Testament. They're grumbling at the Red Sea. God just delivered them. They're at the sea. Oh, great. Now we're going to die. They're coming after us in their chariots. God opens the Red Sea. They cross. They sing. And then they begin to grumble. They grumbled at Mara, where the waters were bitter. They grumbled in the wilderness of sin. Let me show you some of these passages. Exodus chapter 16 and we'll just flip on to a few passages in Exodus and Numbers. Exodus 16, I want you to see this with your own eyes. And look at verse 2. It says there in Exodus 16, 2, The whole congregation of the sons of Israel grumbled against Moses and Aaron in the wilderness. And the sons of Israel said to them, Would that we have died by the hand of Yahweh in the land of Egypt, when we sat by the pots of meat, when we ate bread to the fool, for you have brought us out into the wilderness to put this whole assembly to death with hunger. They grumbled in Rephidim where they had no water. Look at Exodus 17. Turn the page in verse 3. There it says, But the people thirsted there for water, and they grumbled against Moses and said, Why? Now have you brought us up out of Egypt to put us and our children and our livestock to death by thirst? They grumbled in Kadesh Barnea because the spies came back and they gave a false report of the land. In Numbers 14, they said, all the congregation lifted up their voice and they cried and the people wept that night. And all the sons of Israel grumbled against Moses and Aaron and the whole congregation said to them, and listen to what they said, would that we had died in the land of Egypt or would that we had died in the wilderness, and why is Yahweh bringing us into this land to fall by the sword? Our wives and our little ones will become plunder. Would it not be better for us to return to Egypt? So they said to one another, let us appoint a leader and return to Egypt. Go back to 1 Corinthians chapter 10. Next time we're tempted to say, it's really not that big of a deal to grumble. What does Paul think of that? What does the Lord think of that? As Paul is inspired here to write what God wants us to hear. Verse 10, nor grumble as some of them did and were destroyed by the destroyer. Now these things happened to them as an example and they were written for our instruction. And you say, why? Why was God so severe? Was he overreacting? Grumbling is a serious offense in God's eyes. And it didn't start with Israel. Think back with me to Adam. Adam plummets the world into sin. And rather than humbling himself, acknowledging his faults, identifying the hardness of his heart, what does he do? 
just a couple days ago, he's fist bumping God. Bone of my bone, flesh of my flesh. Thank you, Lord. He falls into sin. This woman you gave me. He's pointing his little tiny created finger at the God of the universe and blaming him for his own sin. And this, church, is where it gets serious because ultimately all grumbling complaints, whether directly or indirectly, whether aimed at people or problems, they reveal what we think about God's sovereignty and his providence in our lives. And it's been that way since the very beginning. Grumbling is not a recessive gene that just somehow skips generations. All of us, all of us, all of us, except one, grumble. When you sinfully complain, church, what you are saying is, God, you are not good. That is why it is so sinful, because it is inaccurate. It is untrue. It is faithless. What we're communicating in that moment is, God, you are not loving. God, you are not wise. God, you are not powerful. You are not competent. If I was running this world, this would not happen. And that is what your complaint communicates to an almighty, sovereign, good, and benevolent God. If I were God, I wouldn't be in this predicament because I wouldn't allow this to happen. Not only does complaining accuse God of wrongdoing, but ultimately what you're doing is you're disregarding his word. You remember our exposition in James, every good gift given and every perfect gift comes from where? From above, from the father of heavenly lights who does not change like shifting shadows. So if we know that God gives every good gift, even the trial that you're presently in, your sickness, your difficulty, your injury, whatever heartache it is, God's word tells the Christian that everything that comes your way is for your good. God turns those things into good. And he's sanctifying you by those things. And we look at him and say, oh, I don't, I'm not vibing with that. I don't think that's true. That is a dishonor to God. God, you have messed up big time. What audacity. You would never say that out loud, would you? But you grumble, which is exactly the same. Turn with me to Psalm 106. I want you to see the underlying reason why we harden our hearts and why we complain. Psalm 106 is great. I want you to read the whole thing at some point today if you can. But in Psalm 106, we get uh, this glimpse of what was going on in their hearts, Israel, as they complained. Look at verse 12. Beautiful. They believed his words. They sang his praise. And we say, amen. Verse 13. They quickly forgot his works, and they did not wait for his counsel. Skip down to verse 21. They forgot God, their Savior, who had done great things in Egypt, wondrous deeds in the land of Ham, and awesome things by the Red Sea. Verse 24. They did not believe his 
You say it. Word. But they grumbled in their tents. They did not listen to the voice of Yahweh. Look at me, church. When we grumble, you know what we're communicating to God? Your word is worthless. I don't believe it's true. And that right there is unbelief. God, you're not sovereign. You're not providential. You're not good. You won't provide. You withhold good gifts from me. And when we do that, and I know you don't want to say this or think this or feel this, but we are diminishing in our own minds the character of God. At that point, you don't have the God of the Bible. That's why the Puritan Thomas Matton said that complaining and murmuring is the scum of discontents, the vents of impatience. I love the way the Puritans write and the way they articulate things. Listen to this. He also said, the heart boileth with impatience, and then the froth is cast out in passionate speeches and complaints. And then 300 years later, Dwight Pentecost said this about grumbling. He said, this is just an outward expression of an inner lawlessness and rebellion that shakes the fist in the face of God and repudiates his rights to rule, that questions his love and his wisdom. And just based on those definitions, would you not agree, church, that all complaining is utter folly? You say, well, wait a second, Dom. You mean to tell me that all complaining is wrong and sinful? I can't complain about anything? I just have to sit back and passively accept the things that happen to me? What about people and organizations? What about countries? What about our own governments that does something that's unjust, like mandating a vaccine? Is it wrong to complain about those things? And I would just say, wait a second. There is a type of biblical complaining that honors the Lord, that is perfectly good, that is righteous. I'm not saying that we need to be numb or insensitive to all the difficulties of life. The reality is, as we live in a sin-stained world, there are a million and one things that are wrong with us and with others and with the world as a whole. And what we see in the scriptures, especially in the songs of lament, are the people of God crying out. And they are complaining. And they are lifting their voices to God. Psalm 55, verse 16 says this, As for me, I shall call upon God, and Yahweh will save me. Evening and morning and at noon, that's all day, I will bring my complaint and moan, and he will hear my voice. You say, well, why isn't he rebuked? Why isn't he condemned for that? Well, because it's perfectly legitimate to cry out to God. Psalm 142, verse 1, With my voice to Yahweh I cry aloud. With my voice to Yahweh I make supplication. I pour out my complaint before him. I declare my distress before him. And Peter reiterates all of what we see in the Psalms when he writes to cast your cares upon the Lord. And what's the motivation? Because he what? He cares for you. Perfectly legitimate. But listen, here's the big difference. Complaining 
to God, how long, O Lord? How long? And complaining about God. Why did you do this to me? You see the difference? The first is a complaint that is an endearing trust that God hears us and loves us and welcomes us to cry like a child to a dad. He delights in that. The second is a distrust. It's an eroding trust. It's a saying, God, I don't believe that you love me. I don't believe that you're faithful. I don't believe that you care. I don't believe that you'll provide. Look, the Lord absolutely delights when you come to him in your time of need. I love when my kids come to me and ask dad for help. I just love it. I love being a dad. I love hearing it. And I want with everything I have to help. How much more a perfect, a perfectly loving, a perfectly omnipotent and sovereign and wise God. He loves when his children come to him and say, dad, help me. Father, help me. But when we begin to point the finger and accuse him of doing wrong or injustice, we fall into this trap of heinous sin. So again, not all grumbling is sinful, but the sinful grumbling that Paul is addressing here in Philippians and the complaining that he wants us to avoid is the kind of complaining, it's the kind of grumbling that accuses God of wrongdoing. Look back with me at Exodus 16. Let me show you this. Exodus 16 and verse 8. Moses says very clearly after the incessant complaining of Israel over and over and over, Moses says in verse 8, for Yahweh hears your grumbling against him. What are we? Your grumblings are not against us, but against Yahweh. And Moses makes clear right there in 16.8 that their dissatisfaction was really against God. When we complain against evil, we have a legitimate complaint. There is all kinds of pornography and sex trafficking and all kinds of evils going on in the world. And that should break our heart and we should cry out to God. He delights in that. What he doesn't delight in is saying, it's your fault. We need to avoid that type of wrong-headed thinking of accusing God. And if we do that, we can also avoid the next thing that he says. It's the sin of disputing. Just real quickly, what is disputing? That word, we get our English word dialogue from it. And what it means is we're questioning, we're arguing, we're reasoning in our minds. So you think of grumbling as kind of the emotional response to something that we don't like. And the disputing is all the intellectual mumbo-jumbo that goes on our head, and then it spews out of our mouths. This is how it works. Something happens to you, you don't like it, and you have a choice to respond. You can express gratitude. So when you enter a trial, consider it all what? Joy. Or you can respond with murmuring in your heart. But it doesn't stay there for long. If you murmur in your heart, ultimately, you want to start telling other people about what you're experiencing and how you're feeling. And so then it spreads like gangrene, and then all of a sudden, you go from one little murmur to a collective murmur to a whole congregation and a whole assembly that murmurs and complains. Dwight Pentecost defines disputing as that inward intellectual rebellion where the mind weighs the truth of God, then sits in judgment upon it, and then condemns it. 
And so you say, why is grumbling and disputing such unacceptable behavior? And this is why. Because it is completely incongruous with the Christian's character. It's the complete opposite of what we read about in Philippians 2, 5 through 8. We should be marked by gratitude, not grumbling. Joyful contentment. That's the identification card of a Christian. Are you a Christian? Yes. How do you know? Because you are joyfully content in every circumstance, trusting in God's goodness and sovereignty. It's also wrong because it contaminates our unity. If we as a church are constantly arguing and complaining and bickering with one another and gossiping, there's no way that we're going to be unified. And a disunified church isn't sending a great message to the world. The world watches and says, well, why would I, go, why would I want to be at church? Well, why would I want to submit myself to Jesus if that is what I'm going to get? It's also a contagious cancer. Jerry Bridges in his book, Respectable Sin, says this. Our speech, whether it's about others or to others, it tends to tear down or build up. You agree with that? You could tear down or build up. It either corrupts the mind of the hearers or it gives grace to them. If I complain about the difficult circumstances of my life, I impugn the sovereignty and goodness of God and I tempt my listeners to do the same. And in the same way, Jerry says, my sin metastasizes into the heart of another person. Sometimes when I hear my kids complaining, do you know what I hear? I hear mommy and daddy. That's what I hear. I have led them the wrong way because the things that they're saying are just repeating what mommy and daddy say. But at the heart of it all, it really is contempt toward God. John MacArthur writes this, in reality, every complaint a believer makes is against the Lord and it is one of the ugliest sins. It demonstrates a lack of trust in his providential will, boundless grace and infinite wisdom and love. Every time you complain about your circumstances, you're really just saying, God, I would do a better job. John Piper says this, grumbling is an evidence of little faith in the gracious providence of God in all the affairs of our lives. And little faith is a dishonor to him. It belittles his sovereignty and wisdom and goodness. And that right there, I think Piper encapsulates, it all comes down to just faithless pride. So how many of you are eager to go home and just begin complaining when you know that this sin is serious in God's eyes? Are you serious about working out your salvation with fear and trembling? Do you really yearn to honor the Lord? Do you desire to be spiritually mature and to walk in obedience? If that is your heart, and I believe it is, then we will see and we will hear less and less complaining so the command is clear, do all things without grumbling, without disputing. And you say, but that does still sound a bit excessive. How am I supposed to walk away today and actually get better at this? Because if you're, if you're trying to pull yourself up by your bootstraps and do this all on your own, you will fail miserably. Some of you won't even know what to do. Like, if I don't complain, what am I going to talk about today? But let me just give you real quickly three practical applications to help you in your fight against grumbling. Real simply, 
We need to look back. We need to look forward. And most importantly, we need to look to Christ. Okay, so real simple. The first is we need to look back. Israel totally forgot. They had amnesia, dementia. They were looking at their present difficulties in the wilderness, and they forgot that what they experienced in Egypt was way worse. Thomas Matton, again, he offers this wise counsel. He says this, when your heart's storm, look back. Yes, there were inconveniences in the wilderness, but a sore bondage in Egypt. And then he says this, this is so good. A good memory is a help to thankfulness. Christian, one of the greatest defenses against having a heart of murmuring and complaining is just to remember. To be around people who can help you remember. Every day, you want to be reminded of God's provision and the miracle of bringing salvation to you personally and other people that you love. You want to be reminded of those things so that you have the right attitude and heart toward God. When the Israelites came out of Egypt, they were as joyful as can be. They got the tambourines and they're singing, they're parting. It's fantastic. But then they forgot. They forgot. And quickly, after all this deliverance, after all these displays, after the 10 plagues, after being preserved, after escaping, after getting their freedom, they forgot. And I think sometimes when we read that narrative, we think, I wouldn't have done that. I would have been dancing and celebrating and I would have always remembered. And yet, weren't you saved from something greater than the Exodus? You were in bondage to your sin. You were held captive by the enemy. You were a slave to sin and God has redeemed you by the precious blood of Christ. So you would think after experiencing God's miracles, witnessing it firsthand, feeling it, seeing it, tasting it, loving it, that we wouldn't complain, and yet we do. Mike Riccardi says this. I love how he communicates this. He says, as we wander through the wilderness of this foreign land that we're sojourning in, looking for the blessed rest of the promised land, the heavenly Canaan, we face trials and difficulties and annoyances and fearful circumstances. There are times when God and his providence, in order to conform us more into the image of his son, bring us through such difficult situations. And then he says this, with the smell of blood from Golgotha still fresh in our nostrils, and with the sound of the nails that pierce Christ's hand ringing in our ears, and with the glorious sight of the tomb rolled away and the linen grave clothes fallen still fresh in our minds from our morning's Bible reading, we face the smallest difficulties and we grumble against God and we bring shame upon his name. And church, listen, I want us all to feel this because it should break our hearts that we would ever accuse God of wrongdoing after all the love he's shown us. He who did not spare his own son, but delivered him up for us all, how will he not also with him freely give us all things? Instead of looking back at their great salvation, they looked back and said, we want to go back to Egypt, back to slavery, back to the former way of life, back to what they thought was worry, pain-free living. The second thing we need to do, we need to look ahead. Look ahead. 
Fix your gaze on the promise of eternity. Fix your gaze on the promises that God have made, has made, which he cannot break. God has made so many promises to us that we need to look ahead. Let me just remind you, Christian, that you can claim all of these today right now. He will complete the work he began in you. That's the promise from Philippians 1.6. He will give you strength to do all things. Philippians 4.13. He supplies every need according to the riches and glory in Christ Jesus. That is your promise. Philippians 4.19. He pursues you with goodness and mercy all of your days. Psalm 23.6. He withholds no good thing for those who walk uprightly. Psalm 84.11. In his presence, there is fullness of what? Joy. And at his right hand, there are pleasures forevermore. Psalm 16, 11. He will strengthen us, help us, hold us up by his right hand of righteousness. Isaiah 41, 10. He acts on behalf of all those who fear him. Isaiah 64, 4. He rejoices to do us good with all of his heart and soul. Jeremiah 32, 41. He rejoices over us with gladness and exalts over us with loud singing. Zephaniah 3.17. He works for good to those who love him. Romans 8.28. He disciplines us. He even disciplines us for our good. Hebrews 12.10. He will never leave us nor forsake us. We can confidently say, the Lord is my helper. I will not be afraid. What can man do to me? Hebrews 13.5. He knows the very heads on your head. Matthew 10. And he has all authority in heaven and on earth, and he promises to be with us to the end of the age. God's not going to let you down. God doesn't do anything to harm you. God is for you. He's accomplishing everything in your life, no matter how difficult, for his glory and for your good. And the last thing, look back, look forward, but most importantly, we need to look to Jesus. The command to work out our salvation, remember, it comes on the heels of the greatest Christology in the New Testament, the mountain peak, the Mount Everest. Jesus, God himself, comes to this earth. He humbles himself by becoming a man. He humbles himself more by becoming a slave. He humbles himself even more by going to death. He humbles himself even more by the most painful, worst death one can imagine, death on the cross. He humbled himself for you to remind you that all of your sins of complaining, that all the times that you can't honor him the way that you want to, he's died for that. It's all paid for. It's taken care of. That is great love. And when we consider that love, there's no need to complain because we know, we're convinced, we're confident that Jesus paid a price that we couldn't pay he sacrificed his life so that we would not have to suffer one second in hell. That believer is worth saying, I will not complain. Let's pray. Oh Lord, we love you. Because being reviled, you did not revile in return. While suffering, you uttered no threats, but you kept entrusting yourself to him who judges righteously. Oh, Jesus, we love you because 
You delighted to do God's will. And that's something that we struggle with. We want constantly, Lord, to be autonomous, to do our own thing. And yet we know, Father, the sinfulness of that, the wickedness of that. We are a stubborn and foolish people. And so we need your help. Oh, Father, help us to recognize that every moment we take a borrowed breath, every moment we live on this earth enjoying your gracious gifts, common grace, special grace, every day that we enjoy mercy, every hour that goes by that we are covered by the precious, precious blood of Christ, oh Lord, there is no greater position of blessing than that. And Father, we need these reminders because if we lose sight of that, if we forget these things, then we will grumble in our heart. Oh Lord, if you shouldn't count iniquities, if you should mark them, who would stand? We would all fall. And so we thank you that all of our sin, past, present, and future, has already been paid for. And you've given us a million and one ways to rejoice. And we're thankful even for this season as we come to Thanksgiving to offer up our thanks to you, our gratitude to you for all that you've accomplished, all that you promised to complete, and all that you're currently doing in our lives to make us more like Jesus. It's in his name we pray, amen.